The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the brothers. Hey everybody, this is Greg of the Brothers Wish number 144. Today I have with me. He was uh, Jesus, I think last was it like two weeks ago, and now he's uh, like that. I don't know. What are you, Jesus's like um, business partner? Because his nephew, maybe. I guess. What business is he in? Uh, he sells the uh, uh, materials, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh, like wood, nails, things like that. Oh, uh, okay. He doesn't build them. He just sells the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, maybe, uh, I don't know. I'm not a good business partner then if I don't know what, what he sells. Maybe you're a real estate agent. I don't know. That's why you got to keep Could it be. so clean cut. That makes more sense. <laughs> Almost clean cut. <laughs> all right. And so uh, after all of that, you are Nick Arellano out of yes. Illinois. I'm out of Illinois in the corn. In the corn. Oh, child of the yeah. corn. I love it. Exactly. All right. So let's get the uh, stuff out of the way. This is the part where everybody fast forwards really fast. Uh, we have some new patrons. We have Kent Ashworth and Bill Hughes. I can't remember where Kent's out of, but Bill is, he's out of uh, Canada and he's an MSP. So uh, he's very polite and uh, apologizes every time I yell at him. So it's uh, it's a good symbiotic relationship there. It's like my screaming pillow. I can just yell at him and he's okay with it. But uh, he became a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash the brothers was and uh, then subsequently got access to the patron only slack. So he's a happy member there. He's already uh, gotten some use out of there. I know he's already participated in a few conversations, asked some questions. So pop in, right? Add your uh, information, your knowledge to the brain trust, the, the Borg, as it were, uh, stronger uh, together. What is it? What do they say? It's like... Um, the whole is greater than the number of its number parts. Of its parts. Or, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's uh, very much the truth of you. Because I asked like some off the wall question about <laughs> a website, like streaming video stuff. And you guys jumped in there and uh, had answers for me really quick when I was like, I mean, I, dude, I, was, I wasn't coming up with anything. And it's been a problem for a while. And I just have been putting it off. Did you figure it out? Uh, I think so. I just haven't actually tested the fixes yet. So I need to I need to do some video conversion stuff, uh, but I want to do it on the server. But of course, it's not as easy as like DNF install. So it's going to take mm -hmm. a little bit of extra time. So I shelved that, which uh, I'll probably will look at it tomorrow. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We also have some sponsors. So uh, do you want to read the first one, Nick? Sure. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by Sonar.Software. It's a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP billing and operational support system. You can learn more at Sonar.Software. Excellent. You can also go to TowerCoverage.com if you're so inclined. Tower Coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network. Real-time data metrics enable your coverage area, reaching your customer base, and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer signup and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WISP succeed. Get a free trial today at towercoverage.com. I always like it when you see like somebody says, uh, we're the best, and there'll be a little asterisk, and it'll be like, uh, from our customer survey. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> Which customers? Was it the ones that you uh, sent a box of cupcakes to? He said, oh, you can uh, All the above. Ah, oh, there you are. <laughs> all right. 
<clears throat> so I guess at the top of the list, uh, something that I was looking at and is still kind of simmering in the back of my mind, I kind of always worry about this a little bit because I've got some theoretical projects looming looming out there on the horizon that may or may not come to fruition. You never quite know on that stuff. And it's equipment lead times. So somebody was talking about how their uh, Microtik switches have had a pretty sizable lead time of several months, but they're seeing traction. They're moving around. I'm willing to bet that's um, similar across a lot of different vendors. I think I've been hearing people talk about having issues getting hold of, what is it, like the Ubiquiti LTU stuff? Or am I crazy? Pretty much everything. I mean, you've got we've got stuff that's not chip related too. Apparently, getting held up at customs and stuff. Still, there's a lot of uh, shortages all around. So you kind of just have to check all the distributors and check like Ubiquity's website and just hope somebody restocks and hope you can get your order through. It's uh, it's it's getting pretty bad. <laughs> hmm. Do you feel like it's getting worse or the same, or do you feel like it's getting a little better or what? Uh, it's hard to gauge because, like, you would think it's it keeps getting worse, but then somehow, like, Ubiquity pulls out stock on their website, and like we buy it and it ships right out. But the distributors are low on stuff. You talk to distributors, and there's like, you know, six months, like mid of next year lead times on certain products, oh. and then so I don't I don't know exactly why or what all is going on there as far as the chip shortage front and if that's getting any better or worse. I just know that there's a lot of stuff that's not available. It sucks. Yeah. So it's like some of this stuff makes me fret a bit on lead times. Like if it's a building like an MDU I'm going to go into where it's like they haven't even broke ground, that makes me feel a little better, right? It's like I got some runtime here. I can yeah. probably, you know, put some orders in and make things happen. But I'm just afraid I'm going to get one that's like a conversion because uh, supposedly... You know, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be getting some phone calls pretty soon about, oh, these people, I'm already referring them over and blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, oh, man, if, if I need to do like a rip and replace, am I even going to be able to get kit in to make this stuff happen? It, uh, But obviously, it's a woe um, that everybody is feeling right now. You know, it's a shared sort of crisis. So I, I didn't know if you had any additional insight because I know you're you guys are pretty sizable. You're moving equipment. Thought maybe you'd have your finger on the pulse a little better than me. We did pretty good on doing what most people do, which is also problematic, which is uh, you buy in bulk, like as soon as we could. So most of the CPE equipment, uh, we went overboard and and bought a ton. Uh, but you know things like prisms are hard to come by. Uh, luckily, we've been doing a lot of uh, tower upgrades and rotations, so we've got a, a big chunk of prisms that we're rotating out between sites. Um, but it could lead to a problem for sure eventually. Uh, but it, it is unfortunate because, you know, especially if you look at the new products from Microtik, uh, some of the stuff I'm, I'm hoping to get, you look at some of the distributors and there's like 40 or 50 coming in a couple months and there's like 150 on order. Mm. So people are just way back ordering stuff. So I have no clue what I'm going to get going to be able to even get a 5009 or something to play with which is really disappointing because it's like how's that going to affect new products coming out uh in the coming months or six months like is are all the new products and goodies going to get delayed and you know one of those things is an item on our list today mm. 
Yeah, for sure. It makes you wonder, uh, should we start up like a Brothers with distributorship and make it like nonprofit? <laughs> we just <laughs> we just buy a oh, bulk man, and, and give it to the guys inside uh, at cost. <laughs> yeah, that would be hectic. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that. Somebody else can do that. <laughs> yeah, apparently with, with like Microtech and stuff, the, the actual stock quantity isn't that high to be like a distributor. But you got to wait for like big Latvian shipments to come in by ship. And that'd be a logistical nightmare for people who have never done that sort of thing. Mm. I'm assuming you have to have a chunk of cash ahead of time to make all that stuff. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let's move on to some more uh, bad news. What do you say? Let's do it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm willing to bet everybody's heard of the VoIP.ms um, issues that have been going on lately. So there's been a massive DDoS against these guys. So VoIP.ms, they're a Canadian-based company, but they have, uh, they're claiming over 80,000 customers and I think in 127 countries. So, I mean, that's a, that's a global uh, service, right? They're all over the place. And they have been getting attacked pretty rigorously for, what, a couple of weeks now? Yeah. I think it's been about yeah. two weeks. And so some of the early reports were saying that the VoIP.ms DDoS attack was um, an extortion play, right? So they attack them and say, hey, pay us this money and we'll make the attack stop. I, I don't know if that was misinformation. Um, I think that, I think the one of the news articles I originally read said that they were just asking for like 40 grand and I'm willing to bet they've lost 40 grand. Uh, in uh, <laughs> in service disruptions over the last two weeks, because it was basically unusable for most of that time. Uh, at first, it just seemed like maybe it was their website, and then uh, maybe we kind of have our website back on. But no, it was VoIP services uh, altogether having issues there. Um, they, uh, I guess, started communicating uh, through email. So I was getting email notifications as well as you could see kind of what was going on on Twitter. I don't think they were as verbose on Twitter as they were via email. But they started doing some DDoS mitigation stuff. So their website has a, a nice CAPTCHA on there now uh, that you got to go through. But their website still runs like dog crap. It is running so slow and so many timeouts and it just takes forever to trudge through it. Even, even now, you know, that they supposedly have most of that stuff mitigated. Um, they, uh, also spun up some new servers. And then if you are still having problems, if you pop into the server list, you can look for the ones with a green checkbox. Supposedly, supposedly those are the ones that have the DDoS mitigation stuff in place. And as soon as I moved off like the Dallas one server over to the Houston one server that had the check mark, I was able to actually like connect and do all that stuff. Well, I guess maybe it was like three or four days ago. They actually on their website made this little interface that was really easy to forward your phone numbers off to something else. And ugh, I begrudgingly forwarded my support lines to my cell phone, which is not exactly what I wanted to have happen. But, uh, you know, in a pinch, uh, what do they say? Any port in a storm, I guess. So I, I went with that and that did seem to function okay. And then um, I've noticed whenever you choose a new server, so I'm using 3CX, you choose a new server, but then you also you have to go into the VoIP.ms interface, go to your manage DID section, select them all, and then change the uh, VoIP server that it's terminating on to match what your SIP trunk is connecting to on 3CX. It's just, you select them all and you know, choose the, the new 
uh, pop server, then click apply just right there on that pop server. It fixes everything. Uh, with 3CX, if you make that adjustment, don't forget to reset your uh, SIP trunk. Otherwise, it doesn't seem to, to go through uh, properly. Uh, I got it up on Houston One yesterday and everything was great. And I checked it again this morning and it was disconnected. And I noticed they added a Houston 2. So I couldn't get it to come back up on Houston 1, switched to Houston 2, and it came up. So then I switched all my DIDs to Houston 2. I'm assuming this is going to be something where I'm going to need to check this every few hours for a while until they really get this figured out because it was supposedly one of the ones that had all the protection pieces in place and there's no telling i mean there's quite literally no telling what they're trying to do to keep this stuff afloat right now so uh, i wouldn't expect consistent uh, consistent behavior out of any of their services at the moment but it looks like it's returned um you've got some experience with voip stuff what do you think so from what I had heard was that, you know, basically VoIP.ms, they'll find a data center and they'll just stick a couple of servers in there to act as endpoints. Or maybe uh, if somebody's in that data center and they can just lease space from, you know, like a, a subtenant in there, maybe they'll stick a, a box in there or something to that effect. Um, I'm not sure what DDoS mitigation methods they had in place, but obviously, uh, if they had anything in place, it wasn't adequate. And it, apparently they had to scramble pretty hard to get some stuff uh, going in the time frame that they did. So what are your experiences with um, mitigating DDoS or what additional information do you have on the VoIP situation there for VoIP.ms? Well, just in general, I would say, you know, nobody wants to get DDoSed. Nobody, you know, plans to get DDoSed. And, when you're a company of that size, especially with phone systems. So like there's, there's a lot of services people have that aren't super critical, but there is a lot of companies who really depend on phones ringing, like their business operates and runs with their phones ringing. So a lot of times situations like this are probably the loudest and in your face because people depend so much on their phone system. So, you know, people go on Twitter, people like to give their opinion on you know why didn't VoIP MS just do this or why didn't VoIP MS just do do that? It's like they have a team of engineers. I'm sure everything that people are throwing on social media they've tried. And people have to remember that just like our detection and software options have gotten better over the years for DDoS protection, the attacks have also become more sophisticated, mm. especially with things like AI and just just the sheer volume of of slave hosts out there to do these attacks. So the solution isn't always you just throw Cloudflare in front of it. It doesn't, that's it, not like a guaranteed just overnight fix and you move on because some of these attacks, the way that they craft the packets, the payloads, like the frequency that they send them from the bots, it's, it's very hard to discern that from different traffic unless they're doing something um, obvious, like they're, they're sending improper like TCP, you know, handshake orders and, and other sorts of like common uh, attacks that we know of, but most of these botnets, these big ones that can cause these sort of disruptions, they have so many hosts in so many different areas that you can't block the IPs really, because some of those are probably, you know, customers or on networks that they don't know that it's they're part of the botnet. So you can't just go block all these IPs because they're distributed across the world. They're sending these tiny little packets that don't really raise red flags, and they're just coming in mass. So when that stuff happens and your service is down, 
it's not an easy thing to figure out like what to do. So I think they do have some Cloudflare mitigation, but this is the type of thing where they would have to work with someone like Cloudflare to look at uh, how how is the attack behaving and how can they mitigate it? Because not only is this an attack on infrastructure, but the, it, it becomes a problem where you either comply and pay the money, which makes you a known target that will pay if they get attacked again, or you find a way to combat the DDoS attack and weather the storm and hope that by you not paying the attackers, they realize this isn't profitable and they need to move on to another target. So either way, in, in the whole mix of this, they're just kind of screwed. It's like you, you either pay them and open yourself up again for this to happen again, or you try to mitigate it and hope that they move on to something else. Because you know the infrastructure they have and, and their time, usually the goal is to extort money. So if it's not profitable and it's wasting their time, hopefully they'll just move on to another mm. target. Um, well, I don't know. Like, um, it's all a gamble, right? Because <clears throat> it took right. them two weeks to start putting <laughs> some real mitigation methods in place. So maybe you pay the forty grand and then immediately start working. Right? Like, if you can mitigate it for just now, maybe they'll wait just enough time for you to put some stuff in place. Because obviously they've been scrambling. Um, to do this cloud first stuff, they were ill prepared. It seems. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. perfectly obvious they were ill prepared to absorb an attack of this uh, magnitude, and they needed somebody else, right? They needed some kind of outside expertise to help them with that. So maybe they could have bought themselves time. But also, who's to say that they wouldn't have just taken the forty k and said, "Oh, okay, you are going to pay. Let's ratchet this up." Yeah. So or like who knows? Like two months later, are they just going to do it again? Yeah. Or is, is another actor, because one thing that's annoying about these these public attacks and exploits is like a lot of people in that that area, like the um, the black hat guys, there's a lot of like pride and I guess clout, you could say. So when somebody gets away with something like that on the public stage, a lot of times there's there's copycats and people following up the same thing with all those crypto viruses and WannaCry. Like once that kind of got out and, and got leaked, like people were still doing it themselves, getting that stuff out there. So it's like once you get into that torrent of crap, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen or who's going to do it next. But like once you pay, like you're 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 I think you're probably more of a target for certain individuals who know you'll pay out to deal with it. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, but not everybody is an expert. Uh, you know, if, if you're a. A VoIP platform or a, a VoIP hosted platform that doesn't mean that you have denial of service experts or security experts working for you. They're probably people who specialize in normal like DevOps, like servers, and and specifically VoIP in that industry. So, you know, the, those two weeks they were probably talking with their cloud hosting providers to see like can they do anything to 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 gather data on this attack. Is there anything that they can do or their engineering team can do to help mitigate this or whether this they're probably looking at obviously Cloudflare. Um, AWS has a has probably one of the best um, like DDoS and like threat uh, teams. So a lot of times there's a lot of big companies that get attacked on AWS, and they have a whole department that works one on one with you to analyze the data. They're all like field experts, and they help to mitigate some of the um, defenses in AWS's platform. But you know, in this situation, it's like they could cut it off. And just like, you know, look at the data, but sometimes they kind of need 
ongoing collection for for somebody to kind of analyze like what's happening and how to mitigate and prevent it for, uh, in the future. And even if you do that, they might just shift tactics because they have all these hosts. So if if they know that their um, their exploit is getting detected and blocked, they can just you know change strategies. Mm-hmm. Like you don't you don't know. This isn't something that's just a simple solution. It's very complicated. Obviously, customers are upset. Uh, you know, but the company itself is probably pretty upset about this. Like nobody wants to deal with this crap. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I had. Uh, I saw a few people. I had what, my apartment complex. The management come and said, "Do you guys change numbers or something? It's not working." I was like, <laughs> "You know, it's like that's never, that's never the call you want to get." You know, it's like, "No, yeah. I'm sorry." And the company that hosts my voice services are so jammed up right now that it's impossible for me to actually do anything. So I'm kind of dead in the water for the moment. And I sure not giving them my cell phone number so <laughs> it's like don't do that but, you, know, you were talking about aws being able to absorb this stuff i've heard of companies before um ones you're probably familiar with uh where uh, they would host their own stuff and when they would see like a ddos attack coming in they would shift their routing to go through aws and then come back to their services just to scrub it and i hear aws gets really pissed when you do that <laughs> like if you're not if you're not really hosting like on their platform you're just using them as a scrubbing yeah. at least that's what i've heard in the past uh maybe they maybe they're not so uh, mad about it now but I, I can imagine you know if you're just using them as a band-aid they probably uh probably aren't big fans of that but yeah i mean they they've got one of the biggest infrastructures in the world yeah and um you know, the nice part about hosting on there is that they have this whole team of experts that they'll assign someone directly to your case and they'll work with the whole engineering team to figure out who's attacking you, how the attack's happening and how to mitigate it in your application. And they give people credits because uh, especially on there, if you're doing things that's based on usage or requests, um, it, it could not only take your service down, but also financially ruin a startup company who is paying for auto scaling services that happens to get run up by a DDoS attack and they've got a $5,000 bill you weren't expecting at least on just used services on AWS that was just eating a DDoS. So they're actually really good at figuring out what traffic was the DDoS, giving you a credit and helping you mitigate it in their platform. But that's not always an option. Like if you're doing a web server or something like that, that's a lot easier to uh, protect and mitigate how that works. But when it's something like VoIP infrastructure that has it's very latency sensitive you can't like cache VoIP. It's all live, mm. low latency communication and, and media streaming. And once you slam the CPU, like it can't interact with the phones anymore. So it's a whole different thing than just hosting like software application. Yeah. And um, like something with like a web server, you can really tune that, tweak that, run it like cloud native so that it can be run like affordably in the cloud. Whereas I'm willing to bet those VoIP services, you're, I mean, you're just going to have to run VMs. Uh, in the cloud and those yeah. things man they are surprisingly expensive to run in the cloud if you're just doing a list and shift on a server like it really starts adding up i mean i mean i don't know it may not seem like a lot but when i was just doing some development for like a month where i was spinning up machines over and over and over in azure and then like just basically tearing them down and spinning them up tearing them because i was doing that um post provisioning stuff using satellite all that it, uh, I mean, I know the first month they give you like $200 of credits and it used over a hundred bucks worth of credits. And I never accessed one of those servers like a single time. You know what I mean? Like I was just spinning them up, having like 
post provisioning going on there. I wasn't like pulling updates. I wasn't doing like anything crazy. And it still was like a hundred bucks. So it's not, you know, like running VMs. I get a hundred bucks, honestly, is not that much, but I really wasn't doing anything with them. So I know if I was, it would have been more substantial. So I don't know, but you're like, you're very much more the, the cloud expert when it comes to that stuff. It's just, um, whenever I hear people say, just move it to the cloud, it's like, it's not so simple, right? It's, it's you can't. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be simple, but especially when you do like, you know, you get what you pay for. You either host it on your own bare metal and you deal with hard drive failures, you deal mm-hmm. with, you know, cutovers in the data center, or you let a cloud platform handle failover for you. They handle migrating your resources to different nodes when hardware fails. Like you don't worry about that. And especially when it goes into uh, things like serverless, where you have uh, AWS has like auto scaling, like Redis. Uh, they've got a really comprehensive auto scaling DynamoDB. They've got auto scaling databases. They've got uh, Lambda, which lets you run functions in a serverless environment. Those types of things come at a cost, but you don't have to maintain servers yourself, um, which you know saves a lot of money in engineering. So it depends. Like it is expensive, but it, you have a potential of saving money on DevOps staff and just focusing on the code and ha- letting Amazon's infrastructure figure out how to serve the requests without having to maintain security, you know, getting servers compromised because in, in those environments, they're not like servers. They run in a container and they get destroyed. And so there's like a, a nice cleanup process there. But navigating through pricing is very complex, sometimes more complex than the services themselves because <laughs> on AWS, you're paying for, they have like an API gateway that facilitates communication between Amazon services. There's a cost there for how many requests you run per month. And even on something like S3, which is like their file storage, like bucket system, like just even deleting files and deleting a bucket, there's API interactions that add to your total free tier, which is pretty generous. But other than like a simple like Linode or DigitalOcean where you're just spinning up little VPSs, once you get to like the Azure and the AWS and like the, the Google Cloud platform, where there's all these integrated services, it's really easy to get lost in where the costs are coming from. Hmm. Um, it seems like too. I'm dealing with that right now with AWS. You're talking about like, staffing and like DevOps staffing. I haven't. Yeah. So most of the organizations we talk to, you know, like the Fortune 500 guys, even when they do start migrating, you know, chunks of their workload, entire workloads out to the cloud, I haven't talked to any of them where they said that they've staffed down. <laughs> it's like they still. Like they still need just as many engineers. Although I guess the guys that yeah, had well, physical data centers, you know, so in there they had like knock people, they had uh, building engineers. They obviously let all those folks go. So I guess, I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, there's savings. Yeah, there. I'm, I'm not saying like, let them go. It's more like if you're a startup and you're building a new web application, it's like you, you could, you could start it off like really, really tiny and do like, you know, one web server. And then as as your monitoring and stuff starts to scale, you could put it like a load balancer in and put in a second web server and start to scale those out based on the resources you have over time. But it's something that you have to constantly watch monitoring. You have to like pay attention to like when you get up in the morning, even the middle of the day, end of the day, you should like you have to look at all of your resource consumption, especially if you're building a service that anyone can just sign up and get on the platform. So you have to always be looking and being pretty conscious about how your resources are working before customers start to call because your service is down. So you have an alternative of 
you can take like the HTTP layer of your application and out the gate put it on uh, something auto scaling like Lambda if you if you can get your application to run in that environment. So at least from serving the HTTP end of the application, you don't have to worry about scaling. That just will do it on its own. So then you can make a decision of scaling your database layer or letting that be auto scaling from the start. So it's more of like spending more time building out your 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 uh, logic and the the service that you're offering to the customer rather than micromanaging servers and letting it grow with you without having to change anything about that. You just w- work on deploying, building the code. Because there's always going to be little components you can't um, use the auto-scaling services for. Because a lot of those things have warm-up periods and stuff that causes lots of latency when things are shifting. So there's certain things you will have to maintain, but it's a lot less if you leverage those technologies especially when you you first get in and you you let the infrastructure grow dynamically and you just pay that extra premium knowing that in the long run it's going to save you more money on on dealing with servers de- dealing with patches like having breaking changes on software versions and um you know like AWS for example if you use their database service instead of spinning up your own VPS and installing like Postgres I have like minute by minute snapshots of the database going back the last 36 hours so if anything happens i can say give me an exact uh snapshot of this database at this hour this minute this date and it'll spin up another database instance with all that data so there's a whole bunch of extra stuff involved there that you get leveraging these services but it's a lot to dive into so like they could still keep their staff but you could you know, shift priority away from certain mundane, boring stuff, move some of that stuff to auto scaling and let your DevOps people deal with more of the sensitive pieces, I guess. Mm, just refocus them. Makes sense. Yeah. Don't, um, I can't remember if it's AWS or Azure and, and it may not still be the case, but didn't they have a program where if you were like a startup, they'd give you like a free year or two on the platform? There's a lot of cool systems like that. Actually, uh, for people wanting to start, a business uh, stripe is a really awesome payment processor and they have this program called atlas that i haven't personally used but i have a couple software things that I, i've been thinking about it but you pay uh, stripe atlas and it's like they they incorporate your company i don't remember it's one of the one of the big tech hubs where everybody makes their company because they have the best like laws for for taxation and protection for software as a service but part of that comes with a huge like AWS credit something crazy like uh $5000 or something like, I have to look at the actual dollar amount but there's also a lot of AWS partners who have referral codes and I actually got like a $5000 uh startup credit on AWS that I totally forgot about until a few months ago and I still have like 4000 some dollars of just cloud money that didn't cost me anything. I, th- I think I just signed up to some website and it gave me a code for AWS at one point. So there are a lot of options out there. They're just not like in your face and easy to find. Um, but if you look for cloud compute credits, there's a lot of them that you can get basically an entire year's worth of runtime just free, which is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right. So while we're mentioning uh, DDoS attacks on VoIP providers, I noticed today on the outage list, bandwidth.com 
And I think somebody uh, else noticed. So it was funny. So VoIP.ms was getting hit and everybody's like, how long would it take me to port my numbers over to bandwidth.com? Well, today bandwidth.com went down for about five hours. So uh, when you looked at their yeah, status I mean, page, man, it was like uh, red all the way down. It was pretty rough. No indications exactly of what happened so far. And, and honestly, I don't, you know, they probably don't have to tell us if they don't want to, but I'm wondering if they didn't just sustain another um, or, you know, an additional DDoS attack, just like the VoIP guys. It'd be a copycat. I mean, you you attack a company that gets a lot of coverage. They get a lot of social media coverage. Lots of YouTubers are talking about the situation because a lot of the, the technology YouTubers were referring VoIP MS to their customers. And I was reading through some comments just to see because um, I don't have anything to do with VoIP MS. Um, you know, the, some people who I work with have other trunk providers. So it's like, I just wanted to see what the impact was. And there's comments in there of people who they they just uh, lost all 16 of their customers for their little MSP, like VoIP startup, mm. because of this outage. But once, you, once it gets that sensationalized, it's like somebody else is probably going to try to jump into the limelight here or they just um, see how well it worked on voip.ms let's try uh another right. <laughs> major provider so i don't know maybe they're it's just running down the list but that sucks but from what i could tell the last time i checked the status page it looked like they were mostly green who's to say uh everything's hunky-dory but you know what that could have also just been a, a shot across their bow that's what a lot of ddos attackers will do the extortion guys is they'll say hey mm -hmm. um Send us a bunch of money or we're going to attack you. Hey, we're going to do a, a little test attack against you at this date and time just right. so you know what's up. And then, yeah. And then they melt your face uh, for a few hours and they're like, okay, so uh, you ready to deal or what? Yeah. It's rough. It's wild out there. Uh, wear protection. Guys. And it's such a critical piece of infrastructure. Oh, yeah. like, people need phones. Yeah. So it, it doesn't just affect... Their company affects every single one of their customers who can't get a hold of their customers or vice versa. Right. My customers I hope, I hope unable to sense. connect their TV to the Wi-Fi because it's an old piece of crap. They're unable to call me and troubleshoot. So yeah. it's uh, it really hurts my feelings. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Like uh, I hate that because that reflects poorly on my brand. It's like if you can't even keep your phone working, it's like how good are you guys? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, they kind of took out you know a gigantic company so it's, it's not just me um but nobody wants to hear that nobody cares about that i'm sure you're i'm sure your mdu uh customers totally get that like no problem well <laughs> they'll call me and say they're having <laughs> problems or whatever and uh you know i'm looking at my monitor everything's too. green it's like bruh i know it's your crap <laughs> <laughs> don't come at me with that noise uh, they'll, uh, <laughs> like for, sometimes for some reason, instead of calling the number first, they'll talk to the building management and they'll say, my internet's broken. Oh, yeah. And then the building management will say, Hey, resident in 556 just said, uh, everything in the room is down. I'll look at it and I'll say, well, they've got eight devices connected and they're doing like 50 megs. So pretty sure it's all working. Uh, but let me call it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I, I can't connect my smartwatch. It's like, <sighs> oh, oh, come on. My ring doorbell <laughs> won't connect. It's like, ugh, you're the worst. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. It's me complaining over here. While we're talking about botnets, very much a theme today. So the, the is it pronounced Maris? Is that what it is? 
I have no idea. It's it's a Latvian word, apparently. <laughs> the botnets, because um, there's like uh, there's like a bar over the e. It's not unlaw. I don't know what you call it. When you, I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, we'll just say it's Maris. Um, it's a, a Latvian word. I think that means plague or something like that. Uh, and they named it that because it's all comprised of Microtik routers. <laughs> I was reading. Uh, uh, so, well, first, first things first, if you're curious to see if you're part of the botnet and I'm sure it's not an extensive list, but it's, you know, it's better than nothing to check. You can go to radar.qradar.net and pop your IP in there and it'll tell you whether you're on their list or not. Also, Zach made a nice little Ansible script where it can check your architects to see if they appear to be infected because apparently there's specific files that get added or users or something like that. And so it checks for all that good stuff. So you can uh, go in there and look, but the, um, what are those guys? The uh, security now guys, they did a pretty good write up, or I guess they talked about it in their show and in the show notes, they have a pretty good write up on it. Uh, it's like a PDF copy of the show notes that we've got linked in the doobly do down there. But it talks a lot more about it. So one of the things that they said was, uh, you know, everybody just assumes it's a really old version, like I think 640 whatever, you know, whenever it had um, uh, known vulnerabilities, you know, that you were supposed to patch. But they're saying that um, it was, what is it? Like Yandex, Yandex, something like that. It's like a Russian website. It's basically like the Google of Russia got hit by this botnet. And they said that uh, it was likely not really trying to do anything other than flex the muscles of their botnet just to see what it could do, you know, just a little bit, just give it a little taste. And I want to say they hit it for like, what'd they say? Like 25 million connections per second or something. I don't know. They basically fire hosed them and they said, you know what? That was probably actually just a portion of the botnet's power. Uh, so that's pretty terrifying. Um, but in there, they were saying that part of that, they use QRadar for uh, protection as well, that, that website does. And so between their logs, the QRadar logs, they were saying that they saw versions that weren't just like the 640. They said they saw versions all the way up to the most, they, I think they said not the most recent stable release, but the previous one. They saw versions of Router OS going all the way up to that. So... I'm not 100% sure what vector they're using to do the infection of these devices. Probably, what would you think? Probably a myriad of, of ways in, not just like some specific zero day we don't know about. I, I, I'm like 99.999% sure it's not a zero day. Because if it was a zero day, like I would have had routers hit. Um, from Microtik's own statements, uh, a lot of the ones that participated in the attack were ones that were compromised in previous exploits that they still had dormant access to. Um, this is this always gets into a, a funny conversation because when things like this happen, everyone's like, it's a zero day. It's a zero day. I know it's a zero day. I secure my stuff. It's like <laughs> I've looked at a lot of firewalls uh, through consulting in my time. And um, a lot of a lot of people, especially the ones who are like they're the security expert people. Uh, the people with very extensive firewalls with you know half the rules that have no counters on them you don't even know at that point anymore what your firewall does and like a lot of people don't want to touch it because there's <laughs> so much stuff going on they copy paste from the forum if you've got any management connectivity open to the internet there is there is a chance it's going to get hacked 
it's like it, it just a lot, it, it blows my mind like even like when i first started as a network engineer um i i did like a sort of uh pseudo mentorship with somebody who is like a cisco person and there was like this this whole policy of um instead of like doing deny everything it's like you you block all the things you don't want in and then permit which to me right out the gate just critical thinking that didn't make yeah, any sense to me counterintuitive even to the point where at one time they were under uh, a pretty massive attack of someone trying to get in and they're sitting there adding these ips to a list to block them so they can't get in but people still do that it's like uh block these specific things and then like it's open or even worse a lot of people don't think about the LAN of their network. You, they protect the WAN, but they don't protect the inside of the network. But any computer can get malware on it. And if it sees any of the MicroTik ports open, like you can get hit from inside of your network. Like you can't trust any zone of your network that isn't like VPN connectivity that you have, you know, strict access to and logs over. Like if if you leave something open for management, just wide open, and you're not looking at your logs, you, at some point you're probably going to get hacked. So I think a lot of these were devices that were compromised that people didn't know that were compromised, and it just sat dormant, and someone decided to have some fun. Yeah, I remember a, a decent while back there was an exploit where they could pull your user database, right? They could reach in and then pull all that so they'd know the username and password. Um, that's obviously subsequently mm -hmm. been fixed. But I think a lot of people just patch their systems and never change their Didn't passwords. Change their yeah, right. So it's right. if you still have remote access, you're using the same password set. Well, I mean, well, there's your door in. So mm -hmm. that sucks. Hmm. I mean, you could you could tell people you could try to help people all you want, but uh, proper security practices take time, and some people don't have that. So things get skipped their stuff gets compromised and then it's just a firestorm on Twitter. It's a firestorm in the forum. It's like, there has to be a zero day exploit. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't have to be. I know. Well, cause anytime I, something I like checked this, all my stuff. I don't have a single router exploited. Yeah. So they can't, I don't think it's a zero I day. Say, anytime something like this happens, uh, everybody kind of puckers up huh, and just hopes that it's not some big new exploit. And you're just hoping that people aren't properly securing their things or it's something like that. And so, at least in recent memory, it's that's been more the case than anything else, which is nice. <laughs> but yeah, it's a decent breakdown in there. Also, it gives you a good idea of um, what a DDoS is, kind of the way the different DDoS attacks work, kind of it, in general, generalized. But one of the things that we're also talking about in there is, well, like when these, uh, you alluded to it earlier, Nick, that they're not necessarily volumetric attacks, right? It's it's very low and they'll randomize, you know, kind of the frequency with which they are sending like a send packet or whatever it happens to be so that it doesn't necessarily, a, like if it follows a pattern, you can track it, right? If it's randomized, well, then it looks like just anything else, right? And it kind of blends right. in with all the rest of the background noise. But they were saying they, oh man, in one of those attacks, they logged like 300,000 plus individual hosts, like as part of the attack. And so they're saying, well, I mean, even that, you're, right, you're trying to pick out those 300,000, because for a site that big yeah. of the millions and billions of connections always going through that are actually, you know, legitimate, you've got to pick those out of the background noise. But even then, it's problematic to start trying to block 
300,000 plus individual IPs. You know what I mean? That's, there's, there's a battle in and of itself right there. And then maintaining all of that, yeah. right? So you have to have the intelligence to pick that stuff out. You have to have the intelligence to block it. And then you have to have the resources on whatever it is to block it, to maintain all this. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not a small feat uh, by any means. So it's pretty bonkers. It's, it's bonkers looking at their, uh, their bandwidth graphs. Cause you see like, you know, the, just the flat line of normal connections. And then you see this spike of like 5 million additional connections just instantly come in from that, you know, that volume of, of hosts in the botnet available to them. And, and even then, if you've got that many um, members of your botnet, you can just randomize how many of those you pick at a time and, you could chunk them Stick and, and scatter move. them. And yeah. It's just, oh. Lots of options. And like even, yeah. even if it's hundreds of thousands of devices and they're just opening one TCP connection like all at once. Uh, there's, there's a lot of hardware out there that, you know, brand new TCP connections, just hundreds of thousands all slammed at the same time and then stops. Like that's enough to like disrupt some service. Um, you know, it, it's different between having hundreds of thousands of connections sort of you know, getting connected and going through a normal traffic flow and like letting the router use some connection tracking, you know, fast track or whatever for some efficiency. But when you got all these devices just dropping a new connection, um, especially depending on the current load or if you've got um, not very good firewall practices in place, like it, it could immediately cripple stuff. Like there's, there's a few things that um, I saw on the WISP network that came from AWS IPs where it was just like twenty to thirty thousand hosts sending a single packet all at once, and that that case that happened to be pointed at the router uh, for HTTP traffic, so I just put it in raw to block HTTP to that router because I wasn't even using that service on there, but they were still sending the packet there, and so the router was like, "Oh, here's some new connections. Let me take a look at it." I'm like, "Okay, I, I got to stop this," but just just figuring out what was happening. Because, you know, a lot of these things, the router goes from 2 to 3% idle CPU under normal conditions and then just slams to 100% on all cores. You don't have a lot, you don't have a big window there. Even if you're you're taking flow data to go to something like FastNetMon, um, an instantaneous jump to max processor utilization, that's not enough time to export flow data to see what's even happening. So a lot of times these these attacks come on so fast so like hair triggered that you don't even have an opportunity for the tooling to kick in to let you know what's happening, especially when it's a single packet from hundreds of thousands of hosts. Mm -hmm. So it's just getting, it's getting more complex over time. And hopefully uh, a lot of software vendors are going to like, you know, cl the cloud flares, the people who will let you s just send the traffic through them. Hopefully they're going to get a lot better on dealing with their, their mitigation, um, uh, what would you call it? Like the the attack signatures, like building those things up to help protect against these things. Because um, even in a lot of Wisps, there's been a lot of recent uh, communication about organizations targeting wireless ISPs that they know don't have a lot of resources to extort them for money as well. Hmm. People doing their homework now. That sucks. And with AI and um, all, all these little embedded computers people can get access to, or even just looking at IoT networks in general, like a lot of these off-the-shelf products that have WebRTC tunnels to some cloud service, a lot of those things aren't secure. 
So once it gets into your LAN, like they're just they're little Linux hosts that now have the ability to participate in these attacks. So it's easy to get out of hand really quickly. And like, how, how do you go about cleaning out your IoT device from some vendor? You don't even know how it works. Like, how would you even go about cleaning that out mm. other than disconnecting it? Mm. Or <clears throat> like in uh, my MDU, I've got the vendor hanging equipment off of the network and I can't control what they do, you know, with their, yeah. So it's, if they become a problem, it's like, oh, all of a sudden this is my issue now. That sucks. You know, it's, you can't log into uh, it. Like, what are you supposed to do? Where do I want to log into that stuff? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, mine's just been switching um, management companies, and all this stuff is suddenly becoming a problem for me. So it's like, ah, sorry. You know, I didn't, I'll, I'll do whatever I can, but you talk to the vendor. Um, please talk to the vendor. It's Saturday. Uh, anyway, I was reading an article uh, just a minute ago, or at least I was looking at the headline. You know, the, what do they call themselves? Like Revil or RE, you know, like evil. It's like the, um, the malware for hire guys or whatever. I noticed that, um, they were saying that, uh, they're starting to hijack some of their customers, uh, interactions, right? So it's like a service for hire where I could go and pay them to use their malware and then everything will kind of go back to their network. And, um, I, I'm not sure, I guess the communications between, the end attacked party and then the original attacking party like proxies through them and they've apparently on some of those once they get initiated they're cutting out their customer and just stealing <laughs> stealing the connection to that in person and like taking all the money for the transaction or whatever which i think is hilarious uh who would have thought you couldn't uh you couldn't count on <laughs> the the uh the uh, malware network to be uh, to be honest, forthright, uh, folks. So it's kind of not that surprising, but also kind of hilarious at the same time. Anyway, good times. While we're talking about Microtech, <laughs> uh, one of the things I saw was we've had uh, some reports, some people having to uh, to walk back their MLAG stuff. Um, that there, it may not be quite as stable as they had originally thought. And, uh, uh, what did they say? I think it's something like when you add some new ports to the MLAG, it like bricks the bridge or something like that. But I think if you have them in there and you reboot, it's probably okay. Um, I think thrift was saying that that was behavior he saw with maybe extreme when they were first adding MLAG stuff in there. So he expected Microsoft to work that out pretty soon. Uh, so just your, your mileage may vary. It made me wonder, is that just on initially adding ports in the end lag? But what happens if a port like goes down and then, you know, gets, you know, uh, disabled or whatever, and then comes back, does that constitute adding a port back? So would that, no, because I've heard people say that they've tested failure in the end lag stuff. So maybe it was just yeah, on I, initial configuration. I did, uh, not on the newest uh, release candidate. Yeah. It looks like he says that if you have a bridge that has MLAG members in it, it'll operate reliably until the point that you add another port as an MLAG member. And as he said that the bridge will stop for, uh, reliably forwarding traffic until you toggle the bridge. You just flap it, disable, re-enable, which isn't a big deal, or reboot the switch, which is something that's probably uh, easy on Microtech to fix. It's just something that uh, you know they don't they don't have the same use case as all the customers. Um, not being a internet service provider anymore. So 
there's certain things in that environment where they're not necessarily going to catch it in the lab. Like everything totally works. And then you happen to like add a new port and then it breaks and it's, it's hard to think, oh, adding this port is what broke it. But, you know, in the, in the interim, it is stable. It's just, if you make changes, you might want to just go ahead and disable and re-enable the bridge between changes and it should probably be fine. Yeah. So definitely do all that stuff in a maintenance window, which you should be doing anyway, right, Nick? Of course. <laughs> if you're going to go redundant on layer two, you might as well have change windows too. But what if you're in a maintenance window 24-7, 365? Then it doesn't matter, man. You just do whatever. Ooh. Then what are you doing? <laughs> That's like uh, Fibertown, like the data center I used to, to work for. Uh, I'm still a customer there from like two different angles. And uh, it's mm. so funny. Whenever they're having problems with like a UPS... They'll go into a maintenance window for like a week straight. It's like, uh, I don't think that's how it works, guys. There's <laughs> like coverage, blanket coverage. Right, right. If something happens, we told you it was a maintenance yeah, window. So, just give us a couple so months. So it bypasses the SLA. It makes me laugh every time I see that. It's like, ugh, come on, dude. Everybody knows what you're doing here. Uh, anyway, yeah. I'm always in a maintenance window. Uh, let's see what else. Somebody... Uh, somebody added the line. I think it was Ollie. He's always poking around at stuff. Uh, so 6.49 RC1, which I guess is, uh, you know, just the regular six main lines beta. He said uh, added or Winbox added interface speed 100G LED to system LEDs menu. So there you go. <laughs> but we have the shortage. <laughs> when are we going to see these new these new hardware? <laughs> I don't know. I know that dirty tease, man. They didn't have to put that in there. Those little, little tiny details. I get hundred gig what? <laughs> Give me a skew. Give me a confirmed product. What is it? I'm telling you, man. Like they've announced stuff that like didn't come out for a year before, and people were just always bitching and moaning. So I, they definitely learned their lesson. I actually learned a lesson from like, yeah, I'm gonna just not gonna say anything until I'm ready to deliver whatever this thing is. Well, that's a lot of people got frustrated. I kind of am too on the Terragraph system, because um, they they touted pretty early before the other mainstream vendors about their Terragraph products. Oh, that's right, I forgot about. And that. then like they never, they just not a single SKU was announced. They still don't have anything, and now Cambium, IgniteNet, um, obviously Siglu, they've all got Terragraph stuff out ready to go. Not not ready to go. There was issues, but the hardware is there. Like you can buy it. You know what it looks yeah. like. We've seen some people um, betaing it and all that. Nothing stuff. from microtech. I think I didn't. I here I am talking out of school, but I here's here hearsay, right? Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and put that you know in, in an asterisk around all of this. But I think I heard somebody say that IgniteNet hit like an issue, and folks have been trying to work with them through it, and then they're blaming Facebook, saying, "Hey, this is a Facebook issue, and they need to like fix something <laughs> here or there." So, oh man, that's uh. It's a little wacky wild. Somebody also funny. on the Terragraph stuff offered up the idea, what happens if Facebook just gets bored with this and just pulls out and says, now oh, we're done? Like, what does that mean for all this hardware that's out there? Yeah, but like, they're not... I, Facebook came up with the, the concept, like the white paper on how this would work from like a systems perspective. And so like Siklu, they're not doing it when I talk to them at the show, they're not doing it the Facebook way. Like they're not doing the the V6 underlay for all the management stuff. They're 
they took the concept of Terragraph and put their own spin on it, and and Cyclu has like their own flavor of it. I don't know how Ignite networks, so I don't know if like any of that stuff they're buying any products or any code from Facebook. Mm. So like, uh, they they came up with the concept of how to get this deployed and how it would work on white papers. Yeah, that made me wonder. And how people can follow that, and they, you can change it and implement on it. Yeah, those two things, like somebody saying that IgniteNet was blamed on Facebook, and then. Uh, somebody saying, well, what happens with Facebook polls? And that made me wonder, did they put out like a reference hardware architecture and then they're like releasing software that theoretically will run on that or something? I mean, would that be, what, does that make sense? Like on the IgniteNet claim that it's a Facebook problem? I, I don't think so. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how IgniteNet came up with the product, but I know like if you, Companies like Facebook, they have all these little tiny sub companies inside of the organization that work on like the broadband effort and getting Internet connectivity to third world countries and places that are underserved. So like sometimes they do develop their own like OAM kit and they go deploy like their own hardware as like a a small project. Google does the same thing like Google Fiber, stuff like that. Like these companies do those things. But. I, I didn't know of anybody that was like buying Facebook hardware or or paying for Facebook's own software. Um, cause like like I said, I, I only talked to Siklu, um at one of the trade shows specifically about Terragraph and like their opinions on the Facebook way of doing things. And they said they basically took it and they, they went their own path. So um, I don't know enough about IgniteNet's product, but it does sound kind of weird to make a statement like that. Hmm. Yeah, and I didn't see it. Uh, I didn't see it written anywhere from Cyclo or whatever. Like I said, it was a guy that knows a guy whose uncle works at Nintendo. So, oh, okay, one of, the, cool. one of those situations. <laughs> 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 oh man, well, anything uh, new and pressing or new and interesting that uh, we didn't have in the show notes that you need to address? I don't know. It's, it's been a crazy week, so mm. <laughs> haven't been thinking about cool new things. Mm. Well, it's been a good week for me because all of my British TV <laughs> is back on, brother. So uh, <laughs> Tuesday, I get Great British Bake Off comes on, and then uh, I play pickleball on Wednesday, so I like I'm doing that. And then Thursday, Taskmaster, new season of Taskmaster, and then Fridays you get Extra Slice, which is the uh, uh, what is Extra Slice? It's the companion show to the Great British Bake Off, like with comedians, and they make fun of the episode. So that's amazing. And then my wife likes watching Strictly. So that's Saturday and Sunday. So it's like, uh, man, we got stuff to do all week long. But uh, speaking of uh, media, I, <laughs> I don't know if you read about it, but did you read about the new uh, Mario Brothers uh, movie that's coming out in 2022? Oh yeah, lots of memes already <laughs> with the voice actors. I'm, I, yes. I, I think I'm here for <laughs> like it. Like Charlie Day, I think I'm here for it, dude. Yeah, I'm excited. So you got Chris Pratt as Mario, which is like, I mean, it's probably gonna be fine. You know, he's a cool guy. Uh, but yeah, Charlie Day, which uh, for anybody listening is unsure. If you've ever seen Always Sunny in Philadelphia, he plays Charlie Kelly on there. So he's gonna be Luigi. I think that's gonna be brilliant. He's just going to be a bumbling psychopath, I guess. Just a crazy person. Uh, there's also, what is it? Jack Black is playing Bowser, yep. which I feel like is a good fit. You got Keegan-Michael Key, is Toad. 
Uh, Seth Rogen is Donkey Kong. Cranky Kong is Fred Armisen. Oh my god, dude! So they've got really good. I mean, they've got a lot of talent. I, I I've seen movies before they had a lot of talent and they brick it, but I think it could be awesome. I'm pretty excited for that. I think it's gonna be baller, dude. I think it's gonna be. Good. I'm gonna go see it. I don't care what anybody says. Princess Peach is Anya Taylor Joy. I have no idea who that is, but I don't really care, honestly. I think it's gonna be. Uh, I think it's gonna be interesting. Interesting and or possibly hilarious. All right, man. I think that's all I've got uh, as far as media stuff goes. Greg's media corner is closed. Well, you ready to stick a fork in this thing? Yeah, sounds good. All right, brother. Well, if you want people to get a hold of you out on the internets, how would you have them do that? You can email me at nick.a at hey.com or you can join the Little Brothers with Slack group. Uh, I try to keep up on it as much as I can when time allows. Lots of good people in there. Rock and roll, man. I can dig it. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm on Little Brothers Swiss Slack uh, as well. That's patreon.com forward slash the Brothers Swiss. Um, also, Greg at gregsoul.com or contact us at the Brothers Wisp, or you can go to gregsoul.com. I got a contact form there where I uh, blog pretty regularly. I've been kind of quiet on that. I've been actually amassing a lot of additional information lately on the new uh, Ansible stuff. And I'm kind of like sitting on it to wait and see for, because uh, doing some undocumented stuff right now. And so I'm wondering, are you guys going to release documentation? Should I go ahead and put this out for people? I don't know. We'll see how it goes. So I may be doing like a big dump here pretty soon. Uh, They're going to change it all up on you as soon as you release something. Yeah, probably. I just go and delete it. Nobody reads my blog. Too. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I do. <laughs> really, it's just convenient for me to send to customers. Like, here, this thing, this thing, this thing. Go away. Leave me alone. Um, but uh, what have I been playing with? Uh, one new thing is Thycotic. It's a secrets engine. I've been playing with that a little bit. And uh, it's nice to give you this uh, demo version. I got it installed, and then I found out I had to put a certificate on it. And adding that to Windows, because Thycotic runs on Windows, actually was pretty easy. I was like, all right, finally. And I connected it with the automation. It said, sorry, you're not licensed for the API. I was like, you kidding me? You gave me the demo version? It's like hamstrung. It's like, what kind of animals are these people? Anyway, I'm waiting for them to uh, answer back. I'm like, I want to show your stuff to my customers. You know, it's, help me out. Help me to help you. Help me to help you. Anyway, uh, questions, comments, anything like that, let us know. Uh, anybody you guys want us to talk to, guys or girls or anything in between. Sorry, I'm so gender normative. I'm from the South. Right? Guys just represents people anyway. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. And Nick, thank you for joining today. And we'll see you next time. Just give us a click stop.